Well, last week, I wasn't able to talk on the Torah portion. We had Isa Bejalia here. And I wanted to go back and just touch on something real quick, if you don't mind, about last week's Torah portion and Leviticus 21 to be specific. But I want to do it in kind of a different way. 24 hours a day, soldiers from the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard, stand watch over the tomb of the unknown soldier. Has anyone ever been there? A few of you, good. The tomb guards, also called sentinels, are chosen for this prestigious and highly selective post only after rigorous training and a demanding series of examinations. The old guard has held this distinguished duty since 1948, and this is one of the most exclusive and elite units in the army. The tomb guard marches exactly 21 steps down the black mat behind the tomb, turns, faces east for 21 seconds, turns and faces north for 21 seconds, and then takes 21 steps down that mat and repeats the process. The number 21 symbolizes the highest military honor that can be bestowed, such as the 21-gun salute. Next, the sentinel executes a sharp shoulder arms movement to place the weapon on the shoulder closest to the visitors, signifying that he or she stands between the tomb and any possible threat. When not walking, the tomb guards spend their, their duty time in quarters below the memorial display room of the Memorial Amphitheater, where they study cemetery history, they clean weapons, and they help the rest of their relief prepare for the changing of the guard ceremony. The sentinels of the tomb of the unknown soldiers stand watch 24 hours a day, 365 days a year in any weather. Sentinels who volunteer for this post are considered the elite of the elite of the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, the Old Guard, headquartered at nearby Fort Myer, Virginia. After members of the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment become ceremonially qualified, they are eligible to volunteer for duty as a sentinel at the tomb. If accepted, they are assigned to Company E of the Old Guard. Each soldier must be in superb physical condition possess an unblemished military record, and stand exactly 5 feet 10 inches with a maximum of 6 feet 4 inches. And for females, it's 5 feet 8 inches and 6 feet 2 inches with a proportionate weight and body build. Would-be tomb guards must first undergo an interview in a two-week trial. During the trial phase, they memorize seven pages of Arlington National Cemetery history. This information must be recited verbatim in order to earn their first walk. If a soldier passes the training phase, new soldier training begins. New Sentinels learn the history of Arlington National Cemetery and the grave locations of nearly 300 veterans. They learn the guard change ceremony, the manual of arms, and methods for keeping their uniforms and weapons in immaculate condition. The Sentinels must pass multiple tests to earn the privilege of wearing the silver tomb guard identification badge. First, they are tested on their manual of arms knowledge, uniform preparation and walks. Then they take the badge test consisting of 100 randomly selected questions from 300 items memorized during their training. The would-be badge holder must get more than 95% correct. And even after being accepted into the highly exclusive unit, the soldier must continually undergo rigorous inspections, both mental, physical, and uniform related. When we look at this elite and highly qualified unit, we don't immediately see unfairness. 
We see a hallowed place being guarded, guarded by hallowed, highly qualified, set-apart people. A soldier born outside of the parameters of height or weight, it doesn't ask himself, why am I not allowed to be a part of the old guard? He simply resigns to and leans into the fact his role in the army is just a different one, one which someone else cannot play. This is how a healthy organization functions and excels. Egalitarianism, which is the belief that all are equal and deserve equal rights and privileges and are fully capable of performing the same task with the same proficiency, while it's nice in theory, it's not sustainable nor healthy in any organization such as government, military, or religious service, especially within the Levitical priesthood. We all have different roles to play, and we all have roles we cannot play. To place one of these elite guards in an M1 Abrams tank or an AH-64 Apache attack helicopter and expect them to successfully carry out a mission would result in very expensive disaster and loss. One of the aspects we overlook with the tomb sentinels is how much they must suffer in order to do their task. When the sun is shining and it's 75 degrees out in Washington, D.C., the notoriety in the crowds photographing you may be satisfying and appealing. But when it's in the middle of January and the snow is falling and it's 13 degrees, there are no crowds, no recognition, no photos being taken. The job is suddenly far less appealing. Suddenly there's less people standing around saying that it's unfair that you have to take a test. It's unfair that you have to be a certain height and a weight. It's unfair that you have to have an unblemished record. But the guards, they keep walking and they suffer through those unfavorable conditions because that is their duty and they have a strong connection to it. The same is true with the qualifications of the priests of the tabernacle and later the temple. When we look at the physical qualifications, we can't get stuck seeing just one side of the coin. As we read in last week's Torah portion, the priests it says in Leviticus 21, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations, anyone who has a blemish, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, not a man that is blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated, mutilated face or limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may, not, he may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuary. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. And just like with the sentinel guards, we can look at this list and say, this is unfair. God is playing favorites. This is excluding a people group that should have equal access to the altar and be able to serve as priests, which is, by the way, the mantra of Korah. And to be clear, these infirmities never prevented a person from being able to approach the presence or the altar. It just prevented him from being able to serve as a Kohen. These were hallowed people serving on hallowed ground. They were, we could say, unblemished people bringing an unblemished offering to an unblemished creator. It doesn't mean that God loves blind or lame or deaf people any less. It doesn't mean that the old covenant 
was initiated by like an angry, exclusive God, and that Jesus' death saves us from the oppre- his oppressive father. No, my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just like with the sentinel guards, we forget that the priests in the tabernacle were often the first to have to suffer, especially when things got tough. It is a double-edged sword. They were held to a higher standard of conduct, teaching, and worship. And when the nation around them declined in its morality and righteousness, the priests were to hold the line and continue in their duty. The priests were often the first to be executed by wicked kings or invading armies. The priests were the spiritual barometers of the nation of Israel. They were an essential, they were an essential ring in the concentric circles of holiness ordained by God. And with that, our loving Heavenly Father wants us to worship him. He wants humanity to experience his goodness and grace through them. Isaiah 56, 1 says, The covenant extended to those who obey. Thus says the Lord, Maintain justice and do what is right. For my son, for soon my Yeshua, my salvation will come, and my deliverance will be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath and not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner who joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And don't let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, the God of Jacob, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument to them and a name to them that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to worship the name of the Lord and to be his servants who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel. I will gather others besides them who I've already gathered. So this week's Torah portion is Behar, and it's coupled with the other Torah portion, Bechukatai. And for those who don't know, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible divided into 54 weekly sections that we follow on a weekly basis. Um, for those who don't know, uh, after, I think after Sukkot, uh, when we finish the Torah cycle, I'm going to be doing an expository style teaching through the book of Luke and the book of Acts. We'll go through, those are history books, and I'm going to go through the history and, and work my way through those books. But that'll be later in the fall. But we're going to wrap up. We've got about three years now of Torah portion commentary and teaching on every single Torah portion, which is really neat that we can reference back and, and, and examine. But this week's Torah portion is Behar and Behukotai. It starts in Leviticus 25. And Behar means on the mountain, okay? Um, and here is a teaching from two years ago I did on... Uh, on this week's Torah portion, and I talked a lot more in depth on what the Sabbath years are, what the Jubilee years are, and we discuss from kind of a political standpoint the form of government that the Torah imposes on Israel. And um, we talked about how the Sabbath ultimately points to the coming Messianic kingdom of Yeshua. You can find that from two years ago. If you can't find it, just let me know. And this is one we did from a year ago. Are we people who have fruit? And we talked about how um, Yeshua cursed the fig tree and what it means to not only look like we have fruit, but to just have it as well. And you can find that from a year ago. 
But Bahar means on the mountain. What mountain are we talking about? Mount Sinai, right? Because it starts off, Adonai spoke to Moshe, Behar Sinai, on the mountain of Sinai. Sinai gets its name from a bush, the, bu the burning bush, right? And in, in Hebrew, a bush is Sne, Sne. And when we call the mountain Mount Sinai, we're saying it's the mountain of the bush, okay? But why Mount Sinai of all mountains? When you look at it, how, how many of you have ever seen a prettier mountain than Mount Sinai? Yeah, I have. You go to the Colorado Rockies, right? I mean, there's like Everest, there's Kilimanjaro, there's, you know, Pikes Peak. There's um, all kinds of beautiful mountains in the Appalachians and the Great Smoky Mountains. And, and this is a pretty mountain, don't get me wrong. For a Florida boy like me, growing up in Florida, any mountain uh, is beautiful, it's amazing. But this isn't the tallest mountain in the world. It's not the most beautiful. And it's situated in kind of uh, no man's land at the time. Nowadays it's in Saudi Arabia, but back then it was kind of just tribal territories and no one really claimed ownership of this mountain. So why this mountain? Why did the God of heaven choose this mountain upon which to give his oracles to his people? Well, it kind of speaks of two things, humility and possessiveness. Two of the greatest errors that have plagued the world of Judaism are those two things, a lack of humility and possessiveness of the Torah, possessiveness of the ways of God. If that's not for you, you can't do that, okay? I was sitting on an airplane with a couple Hasidic men coming back from Tel Aviv, and I was talking to them about what I believe, and they said, oh, you keep the Shabbos, you keep Shabbos. And I said, yes, I, I, keep, I honor the Sabbath, I keep Sabbath. And they say, okay, do you drive on Sabbath? And I said, yes, I do. They go, that's good, that's good. Because as a non-Jew, you should not keeping, be, be keeping the Sabbath like we do. So it's a possessiveness, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then there's a, a lack of humility. But then two of the greatest errors I've seen in the Messianic movement are the same exact things. So I'm going to go on a limb and just say that that's not a Jewish problem, it's not a Messianic problem, it's not a Christian problem, it's a human problem. Possessiveness and pride. We don't want to get possessive over that stuff. It belongs to him. His land is his. His Torah is his. And we get to pull up a table, pull up a chair to the table, don't we? That's right. Matthew 23 says, Forever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in its faces, and you yourselves will not enter, nor will you let in those who wish to enter. I never want to be guilty of that. I want to keep that door to the kingdom wide open and say, come on in. The door is wide open for all who are willing to take part. So this is an outline of this week's Torah portion. We start with the sabbatical year. We start with the year of Jubilee. We start with the rewards for obedience, penalties for disobedience, and then votive offerings. I don't know what that means either. <laughs> and here are some vocabulary words that we can weave into the reading as we're about to read. Shofar, a shofar is one of those things over there, right? It comes from a ram, a, a horn on a ram, and it's hollowed out, and we use it to make a loud noise. We use it to make one of these, a teruah. Okay, so when you heard the shofar at the beginning of the Shabbat service, what you heard was a teruah. And if you woke up from an alarm this morning, what you woke up to was a teruah. A teruah is a, an awakening noise, a very startling noise, okay? And um, 
I always say whenever you go to a Messianic congregation, there's always the ill-timed shofar blower. When you least expect it, right? And then the third word we're going to weave into a reading is the Yovel. Yovel. Yovel comes from the word for ram. A ram. What does a ram have to do with Yovel? It's, we translate Yovel as jubilee. It's because on the jubilee, we sound a shofar, which comes from a Yovel. All right, that's the connection man. And then the last word we're going to weave into our reading is Shemitah. Shemitah. That's a fun word to say. Shemitah. And a Shemitah is, it literally means to release, to let go, to let free. Okay? Shemitah. And this is the sabbatical year. Every seven years, we have a Shemitah. Okay? Let's go to Leviticus 25. This is the 32nd Parsha portion of 54. And this is the part where it's hard if you don't follow along every week and read these. The narrative of the Torah begins to kind of get a little bit disintegrated if you're not staying with it and following along. But it says in verse 25, and I'm going to add a little commentary as we read here. Adonai spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai. He said, tell the people of Israel when you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Shabbat. Weird. The land is to have a Shabbat? It's, a, it's supposed to be a rest for Adonai. Six years you will sow your field. Six years you will prune your grapevine and gather their produce. But in the seventh year, it is to be a Shabbat of complete rest for the land. A Shabbat for Adonai. You will neither sow your field nor prune your grapevines. You're not to harvest what grows by itself from the seeds that you left from the previous harvest. And you're not to gather the grapes of your untended vines. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. But what the land produces during the year of Shabbat will be food for all of you. You, your servant, your maid, your employee, and anyone living near you, your livestock and the wild animals on your land. Everything the land produces may be used as food. And you're to count seven Shabbats of years. Seven times seven years. That is 49 years. Then on the 10th day of the seventh month, which is where we get the idea of Rosh Hashanah, the new year falling in the seventh month, is right here. On the seventh month, it's a civil new year. On the seventh month, you're on Yom Kippur, you're to sound the blast of a shofar, make a teruah. And this is also traditionally when kings of Israel would be coronated. And the king would come up onto the throne and he would declare it to be a Shemitah or he would declare it to be a Yovel, a Jubilee. And that would abolish all debts that would, that would return the land back to its original owners. But that would start a civil new year. And you are to sound the shofar all through your land. And you are to consecrate the 50th year, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It will be a yovel for you. And you will return everyone to the land he owns. And everyone is to return to his family. And that 50th year will be a yovel for you. And in that year, you're not to sow, harvest what grows by itself, or gather the grapes of untended vines. And that word there, untended vines, it's the Hebrew word nazarim. It's where we get the, the people who take a vow in Numbers chapter 6 and they have to let their hair grow long. Uh, you know, like Samson or John the Baptist were probably lifetime nazarim. They're untended vines is what that literally means. Because it's a yovel, it will be holy for you. Whatever the fields produce will be food for all of you. This is the year of Yovel. Every one of you is to return to the land that he owns. If you sell to your neighbor or buy anything from him, 
neither of you is to exploit the other. Rather, you are to take into account the number of years after the Yovel when you buy land from your neighbor, and he is to sell to you according to the number of years the crop will be raised. You're going to prorate it, basically. If the number of years remaining is large, you will raise the price. If the number of years remaining, uh, then you will lower it. Uh, but because what he is really selling you is the number of crops to be produced on the land. And thus you are not to take advantage of each other, but you are to fear your God. For I am Adonai your God. Rather, you are to keep my regulations and my rulings and act accordingly. If you do, you will live securely in the land. The land will yield its produce and you will eat until you have enough. And you will live there securely. If you ask, if we aren't allowed to sow seed or harvest... What, are, what will our land produces, and only, oh, I'm sorry, or harvest what our land produces, what are we going to eat the seventh year? Then I will order my blessing on you the sixth year, so that the land brings forth enough produce for all three years. The eighth year you will sow seed, but, the, but eat the old stored produce until the ninth year. That is, until the produce of the eighth year comes in, you will eat the old stored food. The land is not to be sold perpetually, because the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and temporary residents with me. Therefore, if you sell your property, you must include the right of redemption. That is, if any one of you becomes poor and sells some of his property, the next of kin can come and buy back what his relative sold. If the seller has no one to redeem it because, uh, and, but becomes rich enough to redeem it himself, he will chashav, which is to like calculate, to, to weigh out the number of years. And the land was sold for refund the excess to its buyer and return it to his property. If he hasn't sufficient means to get it back to himself, then what he sold will remain in the hands of the buyer until the year of Yovel. And the Yovel, the buyer, will vacate it and the seller will return to his property. And I think this would probably, if really carried out effectively, would prevent large um, landowners from amassing large amounts of wealth and hoarding that wealth. You know, sometimes we go look for property for our congregation and it's like there's a piece of property that's for sale and it's owned by a family that is really wealthy and they just jack the price way up and they're like, well, I don't, I'm not in a rush to sell. You know, there's no need for me to sell. And they just kind of hold on to it, you know. And that can be frustrating sometimes. But if someone sells a dwelling in a walled city, he has one year after the date of sale in which to redeem it. For a full year, he will have the right of redemption. But if he has not redeemed the dwelling in the walled city within the year, then title... Title, uh, then title in perpetuity passes to the buyer through all his generations. It will not revert in the Yovel. However, houses and villages not surrounded by walls are to be dealt with like the fields in the countryside. They may be redeemed before the Yovel and they revert in the Yovel. Concerning the cities of the Leviim and the houses in the cities possess, the Leviim are to have a permanent right of redemption. If someone purchases a house from one of the Leviim, then the house he sold in the city where he owns property will, will still revert to him in the Yovel because the houses in the cities of the Leviim are their tribe's possession among the people of Israel. The fields and the open land around their cities may not be sold because that is their permanent possession. If a member of your people has become poor so that he can't support himself among you, you are to assist him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident so that he can continue living with you. Don't charge him interest or otherwise profit from him but fear your God so that your brother can continue living with you. Don't take neshek. Neshek is interest when you loan him money. Um, in neshek, it also means a bite, like a snake. And look at, if you write down Habakkuk 2.7, you can see an example of that. But neshek is, um, you know, my mother-in-law, was it a year ago? Two years ago? 
My, my mother-in-law got bit by a, a water moccasin on the foot, and she didn't die on the spot. She didn't die at all, <laughs> but she, she, you know, she got very ill. Her foot sw it swelled up, and they waited hours to see: is this something that's going to be serious? You know, is this something that will eventually go away? And it didn't. It got worse, and it got worse. And they rushed her to the hospital, and they put a bunch of vials. I think six or seven vials of anti-venom in her in her body, and she pulled through. But, you know. Interest doesn't kill you immediately. That's how, you know, interest on your personal debt, it's not gonna make you declare bankruptcy immediately, but it's gonna build up and it's gonna build up and it's gonna build up. And eventually that neshef, it will intoxicate you. It will, it will ruin your marriage. It will ruin your relationships with people because you're having to work more and more because you're enslaved to the lender and you're having to pay off all that debt and keep up with all that interest. So just live within your means and be really careful. You don't want that venom in your system or in your family or in your marriage. He says in verse 38, I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to give you the land of Canaan and be your God. Let's, let's get a pause right there. And I kind of drew a, uh, a diagram here. We have Shabbat in the middle. We have the Shemitah. This is every seven days, right? This is the weekly Shabbat, what we're on today. Weekly Shabbat, and then we have every seven years the Shemitah year. And then we have every 49 years on the 50th year, we have a Yovel. So why all the sevens? What do you guys think? Completion. It's a number of completion, yeah. God. Yeah. Anything else? What was the first mention of a seven? Creation. Creation, yeah. And I like to use the, the rule of first mention. You know, when there's, it's like a hyperlink back to that first mention, creation. So what he's doing by giving us these circles of sevens is he's recreating us into the people that he created in the garden. He's saying, I want you to be the people that I can spend eternity with, I can dwell with, okay? He's pulling us back into that. But why are they inaugurated by the blast of a shofar? To get our attention, perhaps. Yeah. If you go to Matthew 24, verse 30 real quick, I'll take you over there. Matthew 24, verse 30. Yeah, exactly. Matthew 24, verse 30. They ask him, you know, like, what will be the sign of your coming, right? This is called the Olivet Discourse sometimes. Verse 30 says, then the sign of the Son of Man. That's Daniel language there. But if you hear the words... The phrase son of man, think the book of Daniel, okay? He's claiming a messianic title from the book of Daniel. The sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. He will send out his angels with a great shofar and they will regather together his chosen people from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You know, in the Amidah prayer, um, the full Amidah, there is a, a, there's a benediction in there that sounds, it, it goes, sound the great shofar for our freedom. Raise the ensign, raise the banner to gather in our exiles and gather us from the four corners of the earth. That prayer is prayed three times a day by observant Jews for thousands of years now. Sound the great shofar for our freedom. So the shofar at its core is a sound of freedom. It's a sound of liberty. And he says, at the beginning of these days, I want you to hear the sound I gave you that's supposed to remind you of freedom. Mm. Beautiful, huh? Yes. 
Also, uh, Adrian, I just Adrian reminded me this morning. Um, if you go to 1917, where the uh, the British took control of Israel, the land of what they called Palestine at the time, they took it from the Ottoman Empire, and then then they gave it back um, to the Jewish people. But that happened in 1917, and actually, General Allenby, the British um, commanding general of those forces in, in Palestine at the time, he actually was about to ride into Jerusalem on horseback on Hanukkah. He didn't know that it was Hanukkah, which is the, the time of rededication, right? He's about to walk in on the first day of Hanukkah, and he gets down off of his horse before he walks through the gate. I think it was the Jaffa gate of the old city. He gets down off his horse, and he's like, I am a nobody. I am not walking into Jerusalem like a conquering king. He gets down, and he walks his horse humbly into the, the, the gates of Jerusalem as a servant, someone coming to worship and not coming to conquer. Yep. As a little boy, he and his mother every night prayed faithfully for the return of the Jews to mm. And he was allowed by God to walk through that day. Wow. To be the instrument of yeah. bringing the Jews back to On that day, which is very significant. Day. But then also, if you fast forward 49 years, you come to the year what? We say it was 66, 67? What happens then? Israel regains control of the city in the six-day war. Yeah, and then if you go another 49 and 50 years, you get to 2016-17, if my math is right. 2016-17, what happens then? Nobody really knows because it's not anything significant that went on in the news. But for the first time in 2,000 years, the, the majority population of Jewish people in the world shifted to Israel. Yeah, it used to be, um, the United States held it for a long time, and then it shifted 2,000 years later to Israel for the first time in around 2016, 2017, some people say. Interesting, right? So the highest concentration of Jewish people for the first time in 2,000 years moved to Israel that year. So it's a, it's a, it's a cycle of freedom and liberty, right? And reclaiming and restoring things back to their original state. Let's go back and remind ourselves that God's goal is to dwell with man, right? Let's go back to the very beginning. He created us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants that. But he gave us free will, right? And we choose, we have an inclination to choose evil sometimes and we mess things up. But he's like, I'll get it back to that. I'm in charge. I'm powerful. I will get it back to that, right? So let's keep that in mind. His goal is to get us back to that Edenic state. But these repetitive patterns of seven are to remind us of the creation process and that Edenic experience, right? Because if you think about it, if you're a foreigner in Israel and they're actually doing these things, there is no food stamps, there, there is no, you know, um, like TANF, is that the thing? Uh, there is no, there's no stimulus check. You're living just day by day. And if you walk, if you step foot into Israel and it's one of these Shemitah years, you can go to anybody's property and just pig out. It's like a built-in welfare system for the foreigners, who the immigrants who can come and they can attach themselves to the people of Israel and say, wow, this God is just. That he commands this for his people to do and I can just walk in, I can eat the produce of the land, these people, and they don't stop me. That is, that is Edenic, that's the Garden of Eden kind of stuff that's going on there. So they're also to help us look forward in time to what we call the Olam Haba, the age to come, the ultimate Yovel, the ultimate time of liberty. Because when you look at this circle, 
Is there a circle outside of this circle? Yes. It's kind of not there. I always look for things that are not there. <laughs> is there a circle around that? Yes. You know, some people posit that there will be 6,000 years of this age. And when those 6,000 years of this age are complete, there will be the age to come. The seventh millennium is what some people say. And I can say that because I won't live, live long enough to, for you to tell me if I'm right or wrong. So I can say that. So I don't know. I don't know. Don't, don't, uh, don't quote me on that. But interesting. But when Yeshua heals people on Shabbat, oh, how many miracles do you think he performed on Shabbat? Just take a wild guess. Seven. There's seven miracles on the seventh day recorded in the four Gospels. Unique miracles. You think that's by coincidence? No. What he's doing is he's pulling forward in time the aspects of the kingdom. And he's saying, guys, want to see what the kingdom looks like? You want to see it? You want to see it? Here it is. Boom. That's what it'll be like. Isn't that neat? And he's doing it on the day that's supposed to be a foretaste of the kingdom. On the Shabbat. Yeah. So, and some people will say, oh, it's really funny. Some people will say, oh, well, he's healing on the Sabbath to show that the Sabbath is done away with. Oh, that's such a limited, like, really, really, really bad exegetical method of, no, that's not what he's doing. He's healing on the Sabbath to show the beauty of the Sabbath, to show what the ultimate Sabbath will be like. He's adding extra beauty on top of the existing Sabbath. He's not doing it, hey, Pharisees, you know, or, you know, religious Jews who've been keeping the Sabbath all their life. Watch this. I'm going to break the Sabbath just to show you it's been done away with. Okay? That, that would be really weird. And also, um, he's the one that said he is Lord of the Shabbat. Yeah. And he also said the Shabbat is for man, not man for Shabbat. Yeah, absolutely. So, in Leviticus 26, if we were to keep reading verses 23, he says, If you disobey, if you don't do these things, then I have to get you out of my land. I will disperse you among the nations, and I will draw out a sword after you. Your land will go desolate, and your cities destroyed. The land, then the land, will enjoy its rest as long as it remains desolate. You know, I wonder sometimes if we in America in the 1920s and 30s kept the Shemitah years, if we would have had this big calamity and natural disaster called the Dust Bowl. I don't know. I can't go back in time and know that, but it's interesting to think about that. We over-farmed the Midwest, and that's what created this thing called the Dust Bowl and an increased famine. Um, But I don't know. Um, Also, these... Keeping the Shemitah, you can practice it in Dothan, Alabama, but this is something that's tied specifically to the land of Israel, okay? You don't have to keep this per se, but it's probably good to practice if you like, but it's not incumbent upon people right now living in Dothan, Alabama. But like I said, I think that there's something to it, and it's probably good for the land. Makes sense. But it is connected, directly connected to the land. Um, Michael, I think you had a question. Did you have your hand up? Oh, Michael, you need to come up and borrow the microphone. No. Well, Israel fails in this mandate. If you go to Jeremiah 34, look over at Jeremiah for me. Yermiyahu. Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah 34. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 14. 
Jeremiah 34. Now, Jeremiah is going to Israel, and he's saying, you guys have been messing up. You've been disobeying. Bad things are on the horizon. And he says in verse, thir- verse 14, at the end of seven years. Let me back up to verse 13, actually. Here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. When I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, where they lived as slaves, I made this covenant with them. And at the end of seven years, every one of you is to be set free. Set free his brother, his fellow Hebrew, who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You're to let him go free. But your ancestors did not listen to me or pay attention. Now you repented. You did what is right from my viewpoint when each of you proclaimed freedom to his fellow. And you made a covenant before me in the house bearing my name. But then you changed your minds. You profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female servants and subjected them. Therefore, here's what Adonai says. You did not heed me and proclaim freedom, each to his brother and each to his neighbor. So now I proclaim for you a freedom, says Adonai. For sword, for plague, for famine, I will make you an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. As for the men who violated my covenant by not living up to the conditions of the covenant which they made in my presence when they cut in the half of the two pieces and its parts, and the leaders of Judah and the leaders of Jerusalem, the officials, the Kohanim, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will hand them over to their enemies, hand them over to those who seek their lives, and their corpses will become food for the birds of the air and wild animals. That's no bueno, right? Well, here's what happens. This army called the Babylonian army, the Babylonian empire, comes in at 586. They come in and they take the kingdom of Judah in 586, and they exile them east. East is always, 100% of the time in the Bible, the direction of exile. Anytime you see anybody going east, they're going to exile. East of Eden, yeah. So they go east, and there, like Michael so accurately pointed out, they spend 70 years in captivity. While the land gets its rest. Why 70 years, do you think? It's the number of the nations, yeah. But why 70? Exactly. So 70 years of Babylonian captivity were punishment for the 70 sabbatical years that they skipped. From the time they entered the land to the destruction of the first temple, which is which they were in the land for 490 years. And they skipped 70 Sabbath years. So they got to get out. They got to sit outside the game. They got to sit on the bench, so to speak, for 70 years while the land recuperates. Yeah, it's a timeout. So during the captivity, God causes the land to receive its rest, right? Remaining desolate for 70 years. And after this, he says in Leviticus 26, 18, if you will not obey me, I will proceed to punish you sevenfold. So what is that? Seven times 70. Let's go to Daniel 9. If you have, I'm taking you guys all over the place here. Daniel 9. Daniel, he is in Babylon, and starting in verse, let's go to verse 20, Daniel 9, verse 20, let's see if we see 77s, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my own sin, and the sin of my people, Israel, and pleading before Adonai, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, he swooped down on me in full flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice. 
and explain things to me. He said, I have come now, Daniel, to enable you to understand this vision clearly. At the beginning of your prayers, an answer was given, and I have come to say what it is, because you are greatly loved. Therefore, look into this answer and understand this vision. Seventy weeks, or seventy-sevens, have been decreed for your people and for your holy city, for putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving iniquity, and for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and prophet, and for anointing the specially holy place. Know, therefore, and discern that 70 weeks will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Yerushalayim until an appointed prince will come. It will remain built for 62 weeks of years with an open space and moat, but these will be troubled times. Then, after 62 weeks, the Mashiach, it uses the Hebrew there, Mashiach, where we get Messiah from, he will be cut off and he will have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come, so a, a prince and a people that are not yet on the map is what he's saying. They will come and they will destroy the city and the sanctuary. But his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week of years. For half of the week, he will stop, put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. So what Daniel was saying, one, one interpretation we can make here of Daniel is that when King Artaxerxes makes a decree in Ezra 7 in the year 457 that you guys have 490 years until all this stuff happens, until... There is like, there's an end of iniquity. There is some um, everlasting righteousness. And then, what was the weirdest part? A Mashiach will be cut off and he will have nothing. Huh. So what is 457 BC? Min 490 years later. Minus 490. It's the year 33 AD. So it just so happens that exactly, almost exactly 490 years after this decree, the 77s of Daniel 9, Yeshua came into Jerusalem and was killed to atone for wickedness and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So we could read Daniel that way. We could interpret that. That's one of the, one of the main ways that people will interpret this timing and this, time, this timeline. So if we go to that year, we should, in theory, have the Mashiach, who is about to be cut off and have nothing, making some claims. Let's go there and see. In Luke chapter 4, he walks into his hometown synagogue. In verse 16, Luke 4, 16. We can go verse uh, 14. Luke 4, 14. Yeshua returned to the Galil in the power of the Spirit. And reports about him spread throughout the countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone respected him. Now he, he went to Netzeret, where he had been brought up. And on Shabbat, he went into the synagogue as usual. He stood up to read and he was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. All right, now listen to this language. Tell me what this reminds you of. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. In other words, made me a Mashiach to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the imprisoned 
and renew sight for the blind, release those who have been crushed, and proclaim a year of favor of the Lord. So, after closing the scroll and returning it to the servant, he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. And he started speaking, and he said, Today, as I've just read, the passage of the Tanakh of the scriptures is being fulfilled. Everyone was speaking well of him and marveling that such appealing words were coming from his mouth. And they were even asking, can this really be Yosef's son? And then Yeshua said to them, no doubt you will quote to me this proverb. Doctor, cure yourself. We've heard about all the things that have been going on over in Kafar Nachum. Now do them here in our hometown. Yes, he says, I tell you that no prophet is accepted in this hometown. It's true, I'm telling you. When Elijah was in Israel, and the sky was sealed off for three and a half years, so that all the land suffered a severe famine. There were many widows, but Elijah was sent to none of them, only to a widow in Sarfat, in the land of Sidon. Also, there were many people with Sara'at in Israel during the time of Elijah the prophet, but not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. On hearing this, everyone in the synagogue was triggered. They rose up and they drove him off, and out of town, and tried to throw him off a cliff. Right? So what kind of language is he saying there? That it's here. Daniel's prophecy is here. I'm standing before you. I am the Mashiach. I'm the son of man. And I'm declaring that you are to be released from the power of sin and death that has no more hold on you. Everlasting righteousness is now available to you. Justice is available to you. Release. Freedom is available to you. Open your eyes and see. Yeah. I was reading this passage this week, and um, one of the things that came to me is that he, I always thought it was the messianic claims that got everybody so riled up. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what it was. Yeah. I think partly it was because he was talking about a Gentile being healed yeah. in the land when nobody else, none of the good Jews had been healed. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was a lot of what got Perhaps. Yeah, very possible. Really made them look bad. And I think knowing all this now in this context will help you better understand this verse. Matthew 18, 22. Then Peter came to Yeshua and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? And he says, seven times? Yeshua answers, I tell you, not just seven times, but what? Seven times 70. Do you think maybe he's making a riff, we could say, back on Daniel's 70s? What do you think? Perhaps? Well, let's take 770, which is the number 490, and let's change those numbers into Hebrew letters. They already are Hebrew letters because Hebrew letters also serve as numbers. But what does 490 equal? It equals the word tamim, which is pure, blameless, complete. Isn't that beautiful? He's saying, I'm coming to make you pure. It's here. If you're willing to accept. You know, people are being released at 490 plus years. They are pure. Yeah. They're released in death. Yep. In a literal sense and in a spiritual sense, yeah. So I got three main lessons from this in studying this week's Torah portion. That exile from the presence can and hopefully should bring about completeness and purity, okay? This is um, kind of like prodigal son stuff. 
What happens in the prodigal son? Right? He takes all his money and he leaves. And he squanders it all. He's been exiled from the presence of the father, willingly goes, and then he finally comes back and has hit rock bottom. And he wants to repent and be restored. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional acceptance of bad behavior. All right? God never stopped loving the people of Israel. He never stopped loving them. He never ended a covenant with them. Those covenants are eternal. It doesn't mean that he accepted bad behavior. He punished bad behavior. That's a loving thing to do. And then exile brings greater gratitude for, for and stewardship of our blessings. This is a good, I felt like as a parent, a young parent, you know, my oldest is about to be 13. My youngest is four. I've got a lot of years of parenting ahead of me. And this is, I think, a good, for, for parents in the room, this is a good template I think we need to keep in mind that we, we don't put up with bad behavior out of our unconditional love. Actually, you know what? That's a selfish thing to do because you're scared of that, that person turning on you and disliking you as a child. It's more about you in that situation. One of the most loving things you can do as a parent is to say, you know what? I'm not gonna put up with that bad behavior. I'm going to let you experience the full ramification and the pain of exile and sin. And then when you finally have let it run its course and that really messes you over, then and only then you'll come back and you'll appreciate the blessings I've been giving you. And you'll have a full repentant heart. So don't worry about turning your kids against you. That's the loving thing to do is to say, I'm sorry, I can't enable your sin anymore. I have to cut you off of that. But God likes to redeem things. He likes to restore things. Speaking of restoring things, Revelation 21 speaks in the future here in verse 2 through 4. I saw, John says, a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. I look forward to that, don't you? So it goes all the way back to our original point. What is the goal of God? What is his plan? To dwell again with us. And he will take some drastic measures to make that possible. He can't dwell with sin. He has to dwell with holiness and purity. Alright, let's close in prayer and then we're going to do Q&A. Avinu, Father, we thank you for your Shabbat today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship and to study your word. We thank you that you're slow to anger and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And I thank you that here I am in Dothan, Alabama, studying your word, 6,000 miles away from where these events took place. I have the privilege and the honor to delve into your Torah, to delve into your, your, your language, and to know and to follow and to trust in the atoning work of your son, Yeshua. And Father, teach us to be the type of people who will exile those who need exiling and will re-embrace those who need re-embracing. Help us to do it in a loving way, in a way that is honoring of you. And help us to pray for those around us who have been exiled from us. May they return speedily 
and may there be complete and full repentance and restoration. And I pray all these things in the beautiful name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, any questions or comments, guys, about this week's Torah portion? This is the part where I pretend like I know the answer to your question. Anything? Oh, thank you. I don't see it. Yeah, Karen. Say again. They are working towards that, yes. Yeah. Um, as Israel is the religious minority of Israel grows more powerful and more influential in government, which it seems to be, that they will go back to that and they will hold um, farmers to those standards. But it's still a long ways off right now. Um, she's asking, is Israel doing this currently, or are they currently trying to work back towards that? And the answer is yes. And I think that there needs to be three factors for them to be. Um, they need to have the temple, the exiles gathered in, and um, I can't remember the third one. But they're lacking two of the three. They're like one, one third there. That's the rabbi saying that, that they need to have these three things before they can enact and enforce the Shemitah years. And they're just not quite there. But there's some religious farmers who do observe that. Yeah. But they're a minority. It's Yeah, I think the peanuts are, are fixing the nitrogen in the soil that the cotton strips out. But Does anyone know anybody in the area who practices this? Is a farmer, in fact, you do, Bill? Thoughts or questions, guys? Yeah. Israel, Israel as a as a country right now is primarily a secular country, a secular government. It's not. It is based on Judeo Torah esque principles, but it's a very liberal country, um, very secular country. And they're a long ways off from really fully instituting that. Uh, are you asking, was it a rest for, for God? Oh, I didn't see that, but I, I could be wrong. I, I may have just yeah, overlooked it. Okay. Well, I guess that's the same question as, like, did he have to rest at creation? Because it says he rested and was refreshed. And that's kind of like an age-old question. Is, does God really need to rest? Or is he modeling behavior he wants us to, to, to do and imitate? Because he was refreshed, that's why he blessed Shabbat. Yeah. Yeah. Stacy. 
Mm. Yeah, Shavuot is a picture of the Jubilee. It's a smaller... Let me go back to the slide. And I don't have a... See. I think I taught on that two years ago, the Shavuot connection, but so Shavuot would be inside this circle right here where there's a yearly preparation for the Shemitah and the Yovel that happens every year. There's seven sevens that are counted up. We count up the Omer and then on Shavuot we have a like a mini a mini jubilee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The spirit be given on on Shavuot in Acts chapter two. Yeah, it's the writing of the Torah on their hearts and yeah. Yeah, Marvin, this might be your first time raising your hand and asking a question. Well, I had a little bit hard time hearing you, but did I understand you said? Well, do you think they will go back to traditional Jewish weddings? Yes. yes. Who's the they? Israel. Uh, it just depends. I mean, in religious communities in Israel, religious Jews in Israel, yeah, probably, more than likely. Yeah, it is. You're talking about Jonathan's wedding last, oh, a couple of weeks back, and seeing that, yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because when you make a covenant with somebody, you always break food, you always break bread right after making that covenant because that's the covenantal meal. That's why, that's, that's all the sacrifices in the Bible are covenantal meals. They're, you're you're um, having a meal of reconciliation and covenant with, with the God of heaven. And the mediator of all those meals is the priest. But yeah, at a wedding, that's the picture of that. You make a covenant, you sign the ketubah. And for those who don't know, a ketubah is a written contract between a husband and a wife. Has anyone ever been to my house and you see my ketubah above the piano? Okay, I have that there and it says, it, it outlines what I, what I do to care for Stacy, and, and then what her expectations are and everything as well to remain pure as the bride and everything. Um, but we sign that at the bottom and we sign it with witnesses as well. Um, but you, you traditionally, you, you, take, you do kiddish, what we're about to do at the wedding to signify this is the covenantal meal that we're having. We're ratifying this covenant basically. A good question. Any other questions? No? All right. We're going to say the blessing over the fruit of the vine. We have, oh, we have Hebrew and fundamentals at 2 o'clock in the loft. All are welcome to come to that. We're going to be talking about what is the gospel. Okay? Let's say the, the blessing. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech 